This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Just a quick note before we start. You might find that we sound a bit different in this episode. That's because we haven't been recording in our studio after the spike in COVID cases last April. Fingers crossed we get vaccinated soon. What did your grade school Araling Panlipunan textbooks say about the Spanish coming to the Philippines? I remember mine had illustrations of sophisticated Spaniards in metal armor meeting Filipinos in simple bahag. The book said, Ferdinand Magellan discovered the Philippines. This idea that we were just tribes who needed to be civilized by the West. But all that changed the second I went to go see the gold exhibit at the Ayala Museum. The Gold of Ancestors exhibit is a permanent collection at the Ayala Museum. The entrance looks like a vault. They sit you down in a dark room and the magic begins. A wall ahead lights up with images of our pre-colonial gold. And then the floor lights up and you realize that all along your feet have been resting on glass encasing actual artifacts. Doors to the side slide open and reveal countless golden treasures, gleaming jars and bowls, luxurious jewelry for men and women, delicate sculptures, and the crowning jewel. Under its own spotlight, a gleaming gold belt known as the Upavita. It's made of countless golden loops and is meant to show the Datu's position in society. Almost five feet long, the intricate piece hangs like a sash across its bearer's chest before looping around the waist. At about four kilos of pure gold, it's so heavy that it broke the mannequin built to carry it. The Upa Vita is not about practicality. It is 100% a flex to show off wealth and status. Our pre-colonial ancestors were decked out in serious bling. Pieces like this belt challenge common misconceptions about our heritage. It's our gold! Gold! We're gonna talk about gold! This episode's about gold! Cause it's our heritage that we can be proud of! It's our gold! Gold! Welcome to What's App, Araling Panlipunan Rebooted. I'm Siege Dantenko, history nerd. And I'm Sab Schnabel, a historian and a comedian who has worked for Carlos Saldran, the National Museum of the Philippines, and the Guggenheim in Venice. Let's talk about our pre-colonial gold and what it tells us about our pre-colonial societies. Here at What's App, we like to say our history didn't start in the West in 1521. So today... Let's start in the West in 1521 because we want to explain what Magellan saw when he first came to these islands. Magellan went on his voyage to find the Spice Islands, which are in present-day Indonesia. 
The problem was, Magellan thought that the journey from South America to the Spice Islands was about three to four days. And he was wrong. It took close to four months. Oops. So by the time he sailed into the Philippine Islands, his crew was a bedraggled, malnourished, sick mess. You can just imagine this ship of sailors with wild beards and scurvy making it to what they thought were part of the Spice Islands. And who comes to meet them? Not hunter-gatherers, but sophisticated people on houseboats wearing gold. Antonio Pigafetta, the chronicler of Magellan's voyage, describes the locals they met. He wore two gold earrings in his ears, and the others many gold armlets on their arms and kerchiefs about their heads. Pigafetta described seeing pieces of gold the size of walnuts and eggs, and a king, what we may call a datu, invited them to a feast where all the dishes and even parts of the house were made of gold. According to their customs, he was very grandly decked out. He had a covering of silk on his head and wore two large golden earrings fastened in his ears. At his side hung a dagger, the haft of which was somewhat long and all of gold in its scabbard of carved wood. He had three spots of gold on every tooth, and his teeth appeared as if bound with gold. Wait, wait, wait. Did Pigafetta just say that the Datu had grills? Yes, but we'll get to that later. Oh, everyone's in gold. Even the slaves are wearing gold. That's Dr. Florina Capistrano Baker, or Nina as she's called. She's the curator of the Gold of Ancestors exhibition and former director of the Ayala Museum. You heard that right. She made that incredible exhibit happen. I came back to the Philippines after I received my PhD in art history and archaeology at Columbia University. So in 2000, I joined Ayala Museum as a director. She was kind enough to speak with us from her home in New York. Nina agrees that Magellan and his crew must have been impressed by what they saw. Oh, definitely. They were more impressed with the gold. The surprise and the awe was on both sides. We're hoping that some of that awe might maybe translate or that our museum visitors might experience some of that awe when they come to the museum and they see the gold for the first time. The wealth of gold wasn't limited to the area where Magellan landed in what is now Cebu. The Boxer Codex, a Spanish manuscript written in the 1500s, chronicles different ethnic groups in the Philippines. Apart from the Visayans, there are illustrations of Tagalog nobility, a Binukot lady from Cagayan, and a Muslim couple from Luzon, all decked out in gold jewelry with different designs. All the jewelry with the dangles, they're from the Visayas. Visayan dressing is more flamboyant, right? Even today, more flamboyant than uh, Ilocos, for example. It's more austere. Many of the pieces displayed in the Ayala Museum today come from the discoveries that sparked the gold rush throughout the 1970s, culminating with the discovery of the Surigao treasure in 1981. These artifacts found in Surigao trace back to the pre-colonial kingdom of Butuan, up next, we'll take you inside that kingdom and paint a picture of what life might have been like for our ancestors. Stay tuned! The kingdom of Butuan was a port city in northern Mindanao that traded with neighboring Champa, or present-day Vietnam, and the Chinese Song dynasty in the 11th century. Butuan mysteriously declined around the 1300s. 
While we weren't the Philippines back then, we were a system of different polities connected by our waterways. A huge misconception, thank you, colonial mentality, is that our ancestors were doing nothing until the colonizers showed up. But the gold says that pre-colonial Filipinos were part of the extensive Hindu-Buddhist networks that were flourishing in this area at the time. In fact, the Upavita, that golden belt we mentioned earlier that's worn by Datus, is proof of this connection. Upavita is an old Sanskrit term for the sacred thread of eternity that runs invisibly through all of life. Another piece that points to our Hindu-Buddhist ties is the golden kinari, a half-bird, half-woman creature from Southeast Asian mythology. Our kinari was damaged over time and has no wings. These were probably removed and sold by a pot hunter. It's an enigmatic piece that Nina guesses was used as a ritual oil lamp for offering to the gods. It's not the technical awe that that thing inspires, but it's more the, I guess, the evocative image of this beautiful female, you know, it's beautiful face with uh, her hair tied back in a bun. And then she has this little flower in the center of the bun. And she has this headdress and then her expression is so beautiful. And, you know, the tragic thing about Kinari is her wings were snipped off. There was a similar piece discovered in Java, Indonesia. When Nina brought the gold pieces to New York for a 2015 exhibit, she was able to see them side by side. That the exhibition at the Asia Society was able to put together for the first time the similar bronze version from Java with ours. If you see it together, it's they're side by side. They're almost the same size. They're the same from the same time period. Ours is nicer. It's gold. It's more delicate. <laughs> Theirs is more complete, but it's bronze. And even beyond our Southeast Asian neighbors, our goal tells a story of indirect trade. Meaning we trade with one civilization and they trade with another. While we aren't directly connected, we've made contact through a middleman. The loop-in-loop -loop chains in our ancestors' waistbands connect us to even further civilizations. Loop-in-loop -loop chains were present as early as the 5th century in Greece, in Greek art. And the Indians have loop-in-loop -loop chains and the Chinese. This technology was traveling everywhere. And we did have all those links all the way to the Mediterranean world. That means indirect trade with places like the Roman Empire and Persia through a middleman like India. There's even evidence in Butuan of treasures from as far away as Africa, like ivory. According to Philippine Ancestral Gold, a book by the Ayala Museum, our ancestors ate exotic fruits like watermelons and drank coffee from Ethiopia and Arabia. Archaeologists have also found evidence of crucibles that point to goldsmithing and metalworking as the main industry of Butuan. But unfortunately, once the archaeologists got their hands on the dig sites, the gold was no longer there. You see, most sites are not found by scholars or archaeologists but by pot hunters who raid the sites and then tell the various authorities about them. In fact, it's how the Balangay boats of Butuan from our We Like Big Boats and We Cannot Lie episode were found. Here's Nina again. So they go in there, they take out all the valuable material, and after they've taken the pots and the gold, then they go to the National Museum and say, oh, there's a site there, but it's been disturbed. In the case of the Surigao treasure, the gold was found by a construction worker named Berto Morales. He was working a scraper in the mountains in 1981 and accidentally scraped up the remains of something shiny. A gold bowl! 
He sent the other workers home and once he was alone, excavated as much of the gold as he could. He started at 11 a.m. and you know all the way until the afternoon. He put them in um, this sako ng bigas, so he dumped them there, and then he put bananas on top to hide it. Cause you know how would he get home, right? There's a company truck that takes the workers home, so you co-workers were saying, "Pahing tagging." <laughs> Once home. He stashed away most of the treasures in empty food containers. Kind of like how our moms have ice cream containers at home, and then when you open them, boom, tilapia. Imagine that, but with gold. The Surigao treasure is just one part of the Ayala Museum's collection. But it's an important discovery because unlike other pieces of gold in the collection, these artifacts are not grave goods. They were not meant to stay buried. They came from a mountaintop. That's why my colleague at the Met, John Guy, is convinced that this was a royal treasury. And something must have happened. There must have been an external intervention sort of attack that they fled and abandoned this group of objects. I'm sure with the intention of uh, coming back to retrieve them, but which they never did. Nina's referring to John Guy, a curator of Southeast Asian art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. So, Mangberto, the construction worker, took his find to the local priest, whose brother was in the military, uh, oh. who knew a guy, who knew a guy, who knew a guy. And then the gold began reaching dealers in Manila. Among the collectors who bought from these dealers were archaeologist Cecilia Luxin and her husband, national artist for architecture Leandro Luxin. They knew that pot hunters would chop up these artifacts into smaller pieces to sell separately and make more money. So they tried to buy as many pieces as they could to save these important artifacts. This was a national treasure that they had been quietly building since the 1960s for the country, actually. The problem was, it was martial law. Dun, dun, dun. It was done so quietly. And you must keep in mind the period when this was being collected, the 1960s and 70s. And there was always this fear that these things would be taken away. So every piece after acquisition would be, you know, studied and then hidden away. And in fact, even family members had not seen the entire collection all at the same time. The Luxins hid over a thousand pieces of gold in their house. In 2006, after four decades, Nina and the team of the Ayala Museum began negotiation with Cecilia Luxin to take the treasure public. Now, let's get into the long, fascinating journey of bringing the exhibit to life, including how many mannequins that Upavita has broken. The first time the Luxin's whole collection was seen was when they had to create an inventory with the Ayala Museum. Nina will never forget it. This was taken out just before transferring it to Ayala Museum because we had to do an inventory. And so before this, she would show me little pieces like here and there. She'd show me a Garuda ornament or, you know, a loop-in-loop chain, but one piece at a time. But to do the inventory, we had to do the entire collection. And it was on all the tables, and it was for the first time all there. And my jaw just dropped, and it was just this overwhelming experience. According to Nina, they could have written a book just on the transport of the gold. Nina and her team only had five minutes notice before armored cars and a full entourage came to pick up the gold. Things were so secretive 
that even the people constructing the exhibit didn't get to see the pieces until the day they were going to be installed. It took us a couple of years to put the exhibition together. So our exhibition designers had to work with uh, photographs and I had to describe to them how small it was or, you know, the dimensions. She literally had to hold her fingers up and say, it's about this big. And so the first time they ever saw the gold was when we were installing. So kudos to them for coming up with such a fantastic design. And the biggest, most characteristic look that I requested was for the gold to kind of float. For the audience not to have to look down. So I wanted the gold to be as much as possible at eye level. And I wanted them to live and float, to be three-dimensional. Part of the vision was having a section dedicated to the pre-colonial Datu. And since the Upavita was instrumental in showing his power, they created a special mannequin just for its display. But the cord was just too much. The mannequin that they designed was actually a fantastic design. It was almost invisible. It was made of plexiglass in the shape of the human torso. But when we put the Upavita, which is what, about eight pounds, the whole thing crashed. <laughs> the acrylic just collapsed. So then we had the problem, wait, what are we going to do now? From the acrylic, we changed to just a normal mannequin from a store that we painted gray, uh, which didn't look very nice. And when we exhibited at the Asia Society, they had this better quality mannequin with a velvet lining, and we asked them if we could bring it home, and that's what's there now. But it's quite heavy. If you had the chance to try it on, would you? We're asking because Nina did have the chance to try it on. Here she is talking about Cecilia Luxin again, remembering a time before they transferred the gold to its secure location. And one of the first things she said to me was, she showed me the Upavita, and she said, here, do you want to try it on? And I'm going, no. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's like sacrilege. Like, I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> I think I would have tried it on. I would have too. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're not curators. True. Maybe Mangberto tried it on. We'll never know. <laughs> Up next, we talk about why we don't know a lot about this time period and why that makes this gold all the more precious. When I was working for Carlos Saldron on his tour, he used to say this about the Philippines. When you were as young and pretty as we are, meaning volcanic fertile islands popping up from the sea, we don't normally have as much stone, which is why he theorized we don't have any big temples like Angkor Wat or Borobudur to visit in the present day. Our ancestors' houses were likely made of wood, which does not last like stone does. But we do have something to hold on to. Gold, a more malleable legacy, but no less valuable. Butuan was just one of the different centers for the gold trade. While there are over a thousand pieces in the Ayala Museum and the Banco Central ng Pilipinas has its own collection of artifacts, these are just a fraction of what our ancestors would have enjoyed. What stayed with me about the exhibit, why I keep going back to it, is that it makes me feel connected to the civilization that we came from. You can't help but imagine the people who came before the Spanish took over and took our land and our gold. Nina herself still feels an emotional connection to these pieces, even after years of studying them and speaking about them to others. I guess my absolute favorite in terms of how 
I reacted to it is this pamarang. It's a single ear ornament the pair is missing from the Visayas. And it's a small piece. It's hammered. It's amazing. The granulation is so tiny. And it's so fine with fine filigree work, twisted wire granulation. The designs that you can hardly make out at first glance and you have to look really closely. And my dream had always been, my curatorial fantasy was to have an exhibition featuring only this. Pieces like this point to a gold working culture so advanced that even today, you need magnifiers to see the details. Some of our pre-colonial gold has been melted down. During the Spanish period, we made it into Spanish-style Christian-influenced jewelry called tamborin to be traded in the West. Jewelry to be sold in the Manila Acapulco galleon trade. The pre-colonial gold says something about our culture, as does the tamborin. We can appreciate these rich pre-colonial cultures and mourn the fact that they were lost to colonization, but we can also recognize how Filipinos have adapted and incorporated new information and techniques into our art, just like we always have. To live in a post-colonial world is to try and reconcile all of these parts of our identity. When I was in college, I thought this was just, you know, some college exercise that you do an essay on searching for identity and all that and then you realize wait it's never going to leave it's an ongoing battle to find who you are to explain um, to try to share the insights that you've gained about who you are who we are as a people and also i guess to share that with the rest of the world that you know this is us we're trying to recover who we are uh, because it's so confusing. Like, what are we? Are we Chinese, Spanish, American, or what? And I think that's something that's unique to people from colonized countries. I'm gonna sound mushy, but like, why did you go back? Because I had to serve, you know, I had to give something back. We feel that way precisely because we were colonized and we're trying to find ourselves and we're trying to recover ourselves, our sense of self, our sense of identity. The exhibition is meant to celebrate our culture, our forgotten culture before Western intervention. And it's something that I hope will add another dimension to our notion of ourselves, that we think of ourselves not as savages who were thankfully colonized by these Western intruders, but that we are a very resilient people with a distinguished history that we can be proud off and that we're able to adapt and evolve through the times. You know, for those who are searching for identity and what is it to be Filipino, the real answer is not trying to go back to a pristine, pure, authentic self, but to accept ourselves as we are because this is what Filipinos are. We have this long history that goes back to the Middle Ages, to before that, and we are able to continually develop and we are able to excel in what we do because of our resiliency and our inherent intelligence. Because Philippine history is so weird and wonderful, we always end our episodes with a Cuento Corner. A random story that didn't make it to the main story, but we think you still need to know. In this case, Antonio Pigafetta mentioned in his chronicles that Filipinos had some serious bling in their teeth. 
pre-colonial Filipinos used to willingly drill holes in their teeth and fill them with molten gold. Remember this line from Pigafetta about a king on our islands? He had three spots of gold on every tooth, and his teeth appeared as if bound with gold. Just imagining it makes my teeth hurt. Yes, but that status that came with it was worth it. And we know people kept doing it. And thanks to chroniclers like Pedro Chirino and Antonio de Morga, we know that it was widespread in different parts of the country. In Butuan, the king had three points of gold in his teeth. But also, the pegs could be flat at the top and made to overlap, with the finished effect looking like scales. Meanwhile, in the West, infections were rampant and teeth were so little understood that they even theorized that a toothworm bored holes in people's teeth. The gold peg teeth in the Philippines show us that not only was the procedure popular, people survived it, which is a big deal in a world before antibiotics and anesthesia. So once again, our gold is showing us that we were not some primitive group of people living happily in the jungle. We were traders and voyagers and a fly-as-hell flamboyant people who like to show off our gold teeth. That's right. We had grills before it was cool. Did our colonizers have that? Class dismissed! Thank you to Ms. Nina Capistrano-Baker for sharing her time and expertise to make this episode possible, and to the Ayala Museum for their support, especially Ms. Marilas Gustilo, Jez Ong, and Ana Tamula. Subscribe to WhatsApp Araling Panipunan Rebooted on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Join the discussion and get your dose of Philippine history trivia. Follow us on Twitter at History Rebooted, on Facebook.com slash History Rebooted, and on Instagram at history.rebooted. Once again, I'm Siege Tantenko, Puma Podcast. I'm on social media at Siege Today. And I'm Sab Schnabel, Puma Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Sabrina Schnabel, that's S-C-H-N-A-B-E-L. This episode of WhatsApp Araling Panlipunan Rebooted was produced by Diosa Quinones and edited by Nina Turalba. Additional voiceover by Nico Bolante. 